this episode of the Cole Memo relies on visuals. So if you're listening to this episode, I recommend watching this episode. Enjoy. This is the Cole Memo. I am your host, Cole Preston. Every episode is released in audio, video, and transcript format. To find the audio, transcript, or video version of any episode, please refer to the description of the episode that you're listening to now. Within that description, you can find a link that will take you to our website, which will display the transcript for this episode and the platforms where you can find this episode in audio or video formats. If you're unable to locate the episode description on whichever platform you're listening from, simply note the episode number and visit thecolememo.com. From there, you can find the corresponding episode, and then you'll be able to access the audio, video, or transcript version of this episode. You might also find any links that we reference during the episode so that you might be able to do your own research. If you're not listening to this episode of The Cole Memo on Patreon, then you're listening to this episode later than our patrons. To become a patron, go to thecolememo.com slash Patreon. Once again, that's thecolememo.com slash P-A-T-R-E-O-N. It's a great way to support our show. One of the best ways to support our show is absolutely free. Subscribe to or follow our show. Leave us a positive review from wherever you're listening to us from. Favorite this episode. Give it a thumbs up. Leave a comment or post a review. Your engagement and support is appreciated. Enjoy this episode of The Coal Memo. Today is November 2nd, 2023, and this interview was captured on November 1st, 2023. Cool. Well, Joshua, welcome to the Cole Memo. Uh, For folks that don't know you, how would you introduce yourself and and then we'll get into the bulk of today's show but i'm curious if if i just met you on the street joshua who you who are you how would you uh introduce yourself to me um well i i'm a uh digital strategist um a a web geek by trade and a kind of a nature boy by by heart and um spent a good eight nine years uh in college and after college as a uh drug policy reform activist, um, which today doesn't have the stigma that it had back then. But um, that was uh, a very interesting and, and you know, formative part of my my life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't want to get too I don't want to spoil too much of it, but I really I took some notes in the last time we spoke <laughs> and uh, I thought it was interesting that I think I think it is accurate to say that you are probably one of the first uh, you know, drug policy advocates uh, to use internet email to organize. Um, sorry to date you with that, but uh... yeah, well, the, you know, the <laughs> University of Illinois uh, was the first place that um, was where Netscape uh, came about in 1992. But we were already using uh, Pine Mail, I believe it was called at the time, uh, Pine Email uh, from '89 to '92. Um, to communicate well back then you had to pay money money for long distance phone calls <laughs> so, so to have a free communication method was was really awesome and uh, at the time I didn't 
I didn't really know a lot of other political activists in other areas that were that were using it. Um, so yeah, I think we were kind of on the cutting edge of internet um, as a tool for change. My bad, I was muted. Classic, yeah. uh, classic Zoom stuff. Um, yeah. Right. So you know, you brought it up, and I think that was that's where I'd like to start today's conversation. We're talking about the University of Illinois today, but specifically something that that uh, happened there. But before we get to that, I'd like to ask you uh, when, how, and why did you come to the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign? Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't have been one of the kids in high school that you necessarily would have thought would have gone to college. But I was a good enough student that uh, I was able to get some student financial aid. And um, I was lucky enough that my parents uh, didn't really force me into one field of study. Uh, I knew a lot of kids whose parents did, you know, basically choose their majors for them. Um, I was kind of given the opportunity. Um, I remember a conversation in high school with my father saying, you know, he said, well, you know, what do you want to go to college for? And I said, well, you know, I, I really love sculpture and art, but I also love uh, anthropology and history. And he knew a lot of uh, starving artists, so he really wasn't too keen on me <laughs> going for, for art. Um, so he said, oh, you know, anthropology sounds really cool. I said, just, you know, just keep in mind whether I make it through or not, I'm going to figure out who I am and how I want to look at the world. It's not something that I even intended when I went to college to find a job in what I study. And he, he was totally okay with that. So that, that made me feel a lot better. Worked my way through, was not a, a well-to-do student. So I, I was on the five-year plan, I think it was, um, just because I had to, had to work a lot to, to earn, earn that uh, college fees. Um, but I knew I had to go to a state school because anything that was out of state would be that much more expensive. And honestly, I wasn't quite ready to be super far away from my family. Um, and so uh, I had grown up in Springfield, Illinois, and Champaign-Urbana wasn't horribly far away. Um, so that's kind of, uh, University of Illinois was, was um, pretty well respected. Um, I knew that it was originally an agricultural school, which didn't bother me in the least. Um, and... Uh, and and so you know, I chose something sort of close to home. Nice. And when when was it again? What year are we talking? Um, I I my first semester began in the, uh, I believe it was the fall of eighty seven. Yeah, fall of eighty seven. Very cool, very cool. Um, and uh, do you remember when and? how you first heard about hash well first of all uh yeah let's just start with when and how you heard about hash wednesday and then i want you to explain what is hash wednesday but can do you recall when you came to school when did you hear and how did you hear about hash it wednesday sure uh, it really wasn't until the spring of 80 um 88 i believe and that was the year that um the police cracked down really hard. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was 88. And yep, um, right. uh, I wasn't really involved in the uh, 88 rally, but 
my heart sank and I was, I was absolutely appalled that, uh, that the students would be treated so harshly by the university, uh, especially after several years of them tacitly, you know, kind of turning their, turning a blind eye to it and uh, not making a big deal out of it. And then all of a sudden they got hard and heavy and um, it, uh, it, it was just horrifying to me. I, I, I thought, well, you know, the the age of civil disobedience is coming to an end. And although I have utmost respect for those who you know, led the way, um, in my mind, if if the civil disobedience uh, approach was going to result in such you know harsh reactions from the university, I figured there there had to be some kind of a you know fundamental change. Uh, what well, not everybody agreed with me, but I uh, by night by you know by the fall I had decided that in eighty nine that um, I with some colleagues would try to see if we could uh, help keep the event alive but with a you know slightly different focus. Although at that point, a lot of people were intimidated and scared away. Um, so it was it was almost like starting from scratch, not quite, but. Um, you know, no, nobody, a lot of people didn't want to get arrested. Um, and so, uh, so myself and Debbie Goldsberry and a few others at the University of Illinois decided to sort of team up and uh, see what we could do to keep it alive. Awesome. And I, I want to give you the opportunity now to explain uh, what Hashway and what you thought or how you understood ha- what you understood Hash Wednesday to be. Uh, but first, I want to show you what you were talking about. I don't know if you saw, but I was displaying, uh, sharing my screen here, and you can see. I just yeah. wanted to say for our listeners, uh, we're, we're, we've got a video podcast, so if you're not watching the video version of this show, please be sure to do that. We're going to have a lot of visuals in today's episode. Uh, here are some photos of what uh, Joshua was just referring to. Um I'm going to place, I'm going to show some more. Here are the University of Illinois police going through the crowd. Here are people apparently offering money to bail out their friends. Yep. And then uh, a woman is on the ground after being injured and the pushing and shoving that occurred as police made arrests. What do you remember about this before we uh, move on from this event? Were you there? Um, I actually was not at that particular event. Um, I I knew that it was coming up. I had absolutely no problem with it. Um, uh, when I when I inquired around about the history, um, you know, it was it was actually it was meant to be a, a party, and uh, in which a party in which you know civil disobedience would and could occur. Um, I really, after the years of of the university took, turning the other way, I don't think anybody really expected that heavy-handed approach that year. Not sure if they were, you know, capitulating to um, some political pressure. Uh, I don't know if it was a change in the administration. Really not sure why their attitudes changed. Um, you know, of course, it it was sort of a public relations debacle for them because it was one of the larger uh, pro-cannabis, pro-legalization rallies um, in the Midwest. Um so that that I think they they just really kind of had been fed up at at that point. Yeah, and I 
I can say that at least in uh, 1981, it looks like, uh, I've got an article where they are, uh, whoops, I just shared the wrong thing there. Give me just a moment. It looks like the University of Illinois pledged to end Hash Wednesday in 1981. Um, Of course, that was 20 years or 10 years later that you were there, um, a little bit over 10 years. Uh, but you know, and it is interesting here to see. Uh, I it's since the and I want to stop for a moment, and then we'll tell people what yeah. Hashway and Hash Wednesday is. But it is interesting to see here, at least it, upon this report, you know, you you see mixed uh, numbers everywhere. But here it says every spring since 1977, UI students and other young people have gathered one Wednesday each spring on the UI quadrangle openly to smoke marijuana, drink beer, and party. I feel like I uh, almost teased what I was about to ask you. I'll stop and ask you from your perspective, what was Hash Wednesday? It was a pretty big party. And, um, you know, not everybody there was pro-legalization. Some of them were just there to drink and and have a good time. Uh, Of course, you know, open intoxication is sometimes not not very pretty. and like I said, it was kind of a public relations debacle for the university. Yeah. And, uh, well, hey, uh, anything else to add and what you feel Hash Wednesday was? I mean, one word that comes to, or two words that come to mind for me is civil disobedience. Yeah, for sure. Um, there was a, a sense of young people flexing their you know, their uh, will uh, against whatever the local laws were at the time. So that it would it would certainly, from my recollection and um, getting involved in, in a little bit late, uh, that uh, they wanted they wanted a giant party. They wanted an outdoor party. And um, for most of them, they figured there was safety in numbers. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, um, so you, you go your first year, you hear about this kind of, uh, this, this crazy, uh, crackdown and you empathize with a lot of the students that went through it. And it sounds like you wanted the condition or the, uh, the tradition to go on, uh, but you wanted it to go on without something like that happened. Yeah. How did you move forward from hearing hearing about it to getting involved because we're getting to the point where I think I'll be showing our, our first pictures of you as a young man uh, <laughs> getting involved, but I'm just curious before we start showing pictures. Yeah. Tell us, a, tell us about that. Your, your evolution of, you know, getting involved in organizing. Well, there wasn't a lot that happened in the early years that I would call educational there, you know, there weren't, um, a lot of well-known speakers. There weren't uh, booths and um, you know information and educational uh, folks. Then and there were no coalitions with that I knew of uh, with other university organizations. Um, you know, sort of um, you know collaborating on on the event. And my belief was that in order for the the issue of legalization to to gain any type of public acceptance, 
that there had to be some sort of educational component to it. And, um, and I, while I wasn't necessarily the person who enjoyed stepping up to the microphone all the time, a lot of times I was one of the guys that was passing emails back and forth, arranging dates, making sure people had, you know, um, places to stay, legit kind of logistical support, I think. Um, I didn't really want, you know, no, the notoriety that came with my involvement. I don't know that I really expected it. And eventually there was some, but it wasn't my intention to um, become a you know big man on campus or anything like that. And I, I wanted to show you what I think is your first photo. Uh, I'm trying to keep this in chronological order here okay. as best as I can. For me, it was um, 33 years ago, so you might know more than I do. Well, and I, the cool thing is the person that helped me to obtain this archive, they did a good job at dating this. As you can see, it says oh. April 19th, 1989. Uh, I absolutely remember that big cardboard cutout. Yeah, and I think I know who supplied you with that cardboard, but we'll keep that off the record. Uh, <laughs> um. Yeah, this is interesting. Do you remember this picture? I do. I do. You know, it, it, there's a something happening in that picture that um, won't surprise anybody. But a lot of times when there were political rallies, and not just with the pro-legalization um, rallies, but uh, the media would show up early before there was a lot of folks. So they could say, oh, there's hardly anybody here. And then two hours later, the, the quadrangle was just packed. Um, so in this picture you're showing, you see there's a a video reporter in the background, and it doesn't look like there's all that many folks behind us. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and it is it is interesting to at least see the the text reporting get it get it, it sounds like accurate. Um, the crowd was eclectic. Some looked like remnants from the 1960s with long hairs, beards, beards, tie-dyed shirts. Others looked like the epitome of a clean-cut college student. Yeah, it's uh, drug policy reform really made for strange bedfellows. That, that's for sure. Uh, I, I was kind of a long-haired country boy. Um, is this your hair here on your back? It is, actually, yeah. Oh, cool. Kind of miss it. notice it until you said that. Yeah. yeah. You had long hair. Yeah, and, and you can see in this article, it says, after making 11 arrests at the event a year ago, police were unsure what to expect, but this may go down as one of the mildest hash Wednesdays ever. Do you think that's fair? Was it pretty mild? It was. I think a lot of the folks had, were still intimidated and scared from the prior year, but I didn't care whether we had 10 people or 1,000 people, as long as there were some people still willing to speak up. Um, we didn't, you know, we didn't really advocate for civil disobedience. Mm -hmm. Um, we, we knew that there, there could be some, but, um, you know, I tried my best even from the earliest days to try to maintain a decent relationship with local law enforcement. Yeah. And what you just said is also backed up by this reporting. I don't know if you remember this student, but. Julie Graves said, we didn't want civil disobedience. We wanted some credibility, not just to be a bunch of students out here causing trouble. Yeah, that, I, that was an attitude between the 
the organizers who you know picked up the picked up the ball. Yeah. Well, that's cool stuff. I've got more. I want to try to keep it keep it in order here. But if you do you have any other memories of your first hash Wednesday? Any fun stories? I don't know. I just think it's cool to capture this history and we live in a crazy age where we're able to, you know, uh so um well I I was I was happy that you know not everybody was scared away. I was happy that there were no arrests. And um I think John Getman was the first uh, he was the director of normal and uh I was happy that he was able to help lend us some some legitimacy as well. So I I tried not to wow there's a picture Jackson club he's a famous uh zippy from the 60s <laughs> mm, i don't even know uh he is one of the organizers of the um um hash bash in madison wisconsin oh cool him and, him and ben mazel um they were the ones who brought a uh, a hippie bus down from madison that turned out to be the first hemp tour uh in i guess that would have been 89 or 90 uh no let's see 88 yeah. looks like 89 yeah, i will show a picture 89. here is this the bus you remember oh yeah there it is yep yeah. and it was basically um we had uh it was filled with um sort of progressive newspapers back when this was back in the day when self-printed uh rags or zines they were called um it was filled with a bunch of uh progressive zines and uh, actually, um, that was the year I think I helped to assemble the first mobile hemp museum. Uh, there was hemp twine, hemp fabric, hemp oil. And uh, I believe that was also the year that um, I was able to get Jack Herrera from the, the author of The Emperor's Wears No Clothes. I think that was his first appearance at the... Uh, at the University of Illinois. It's so cool to hear that name pop up. I know you mentioned him on our before we got on just to and that's one thing I want to try to have you recount uh here but I want to just continue through the years and uh the synchronicity around champagne though. I'd love to talk about that cuz when you said that I I truly believe in it and uh I don't believe in much. Um so that's saying something. <laughs> um but uh, it's just, you know, there's a lot going on here and it just, it's a little too crazy. It feels to be coincidence. But yeah, I wanted to pull this picture back up. Uh, as you said, no no arrests. Um, and, and they were happy to report that. Absent of open pot smoking, the 13th annual marijuana celebration on the University of Illinois Quadrangle yielded no arrests. Yeah, it's funny. They Usually the reporters would either not mention the attendance or grossly underreported. Mm. I was kind of the opinion, you know, well, all, any publicity is good publicity. You know, there, there's no compelling interest for them to get the story right. So those that were there knew the real story. Yeah. Yeah. This is so cool um, to see all of this. And I think this is, uh, the next photo we have in kind of our uh, lineup, actually, I think this is a poster you made back in the day, quick tangent. And I don't know if this was for, I don't have, oh yeah, 
Maybe this would have been for that Hash Wednesday. Let's it see. It could have been. I think 89 was the first. Um... Oh, yeah. That that looks like something I put together. <laughs> yes, this is uh, October 12th, 1989. Is this a different, maybe uh, Maybe this wasn't Hash Wednesday. Maybe this was something else. No, that was, that was uh, no, that was, it was 89. Um, yeah, October was not the normal Hash Wednesday date. So uh, it might have been a date when we were showing the um, Reefer Madness movie. It might have been a date that we just had a, a booth, a permission to put a, a table on the quad. But wow, that absolutely looks like something I, I would have come up with. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I definitely do have some things that have your name on it that you made. Um, let's see. Here's another well, one. I say me, but I had a roommate um, in 89 and 90 that was very artistic. And so I would I would sort of commission um, commission pieces from him. Mm. Does this look familiar? This one does not look familiar. No. Springfield, stop your intestine. Yeah, we were definitely pushing. Well, we saw that the 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 use of urine testing to discriminate against workers was kind of very concerning, and uh, we mm -hmm. knew that just because uh, you had a metabolite in your system did not mean you were actually intoxicated at the time of the test. Right. Meanwhile, somebody could have you know, cocaine or or alcohol and and go positive and. and test negative the next day right uh, so it was really a discriminatory uh, practice um yeah it's unrelated but, but that still looks related. like legal yeah. in 89 but you can see here join high times and normal on the legal in 89 tour first stop champaign illinois hash wednesday yeah wow so did you like how did that how did how so did this it? was one of the one of the this tour, this 89, uh, what I think really was the, the beginnings of the hemp tour, um, each one of those stops in, um, were, let's see, Champaign was us, Bloomington uh, was us, Carbondale was us, Grant Park was us, Springfield was us, uh, and then the other half was New York, Washington, uh, Minnesota, and uh, D.C., I don't think I made every one of those events. I, I did make all of the um, Illinois events. Uh, but I at that that year, I really was worried about you know, being able to keep my college career going. So <laughs> yeah. it, it was hard enough to, to, to organize. And, but basically, the, the point of that exercise was, well, they're coming to our event. Let's give them two or three more they can go to. And that way, they you know, if they're coming from out of state... Um, this way they can make a bigger bang for their buck. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, that, that was the year that we first started, you know, organizing speakers at multiple events. Yeah. Here's one blast from the past, Josh, you can really see your long hair in this one. Holy cow. That was 89 as well. Yep. October 13th, 1989. Oh, there's Debbie Goldsberry. Yeah, there's I see Debbie Goldsberry, the third lady over. Um that right here where my yeah, I think hand that's is. Debbie. Yeah. Um I don't remember a, but Jim Nelson, he hated. He was a local 
local guy. He just absolutely hated Hash Wednesday. Hmm. Uh, you know, I, oh, David Higgins, he was actually one of my uh, roommates at the time. Uh, I remember Jerry Schweighart, he's a Champagne police. Um, he was not a friend of, of the activists at all. Although, I'll tell you, since you, <laughs> since you show that picture, that was actually my very favorite uh, political activist T-shirt. The very first political demonstration that I privately made before the Students for Legalization, um, I this is a crazy story, but I had heard that, that uh, George Bush senior was coming to town for an expensive, like $500 a plate fundraiser mm -hmm. at a, at a local hotel. And I was absolutely hated the guy. I'm like, look, if the head of this, he was the ex head of the CIA. Right. And I said, look, if this was Russia and the ex head of the KGB was running for president, we'd be all up in arms. And I said, I don't know anybody. I don't know how I'm going to express myself, but I'm going. And so I got this T-shirt that said, Ron sells crack to fund Contras. And it was a skeleton picture of Ronald Reagan. Pretty hardcore for a 19-year-old. A yeah. Um, but I, <laughs> I, I put together a bunch of Ziploc bags with powdered sugar. And threw them in a backpack with a, a big bucket of sidewalk chalk, and went down to the uh, went down to the hotel where, where George Bush Senior was appearing, and I started putting these. I wrote slogans uh, in permanent marker on these baggies, like Ron sells crack to fund Contras, Bush Noriega eighty eight, um, or Bush Noriega eighty nine. I think it was eighty eight. Um, yeah, it was eighty eight. Uh, the year prior to this picture, and. Uh, you know, there's a there's a drug drug dealer behind every bush. You know, I was just practicing like weird marketing messages. Yeah. And I um, at a certain point, a, a row of security formed around the front of the door of the hotel. And as I got a little bit closer to see, like, what's going on over there, a volley of about 30 eggs came came over the line, over the security line at me. Well, the funny part was on the other half of the parking lot, about 30 Central American activists were gathering and they're oh like, my gosh, why did why did they just egg bomb this this long haired country kid? And so a couple of them came over to me and said, what did you do? And I showed them one of the baggies and they saw my shirt and they're like, oh, man, you're like asking for trouble. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm like, well, you know, I don't know anybody. And this was just my way of, of protesting. And they're like, no, no, no. We think it's cool. Is there is there anything we can do to help you? And I was like, well, I got this sidewalk chalk. Um, can you help me draw some dead body outlines around, the, you know, on the block around the hotel? And, uh, you know, like people who got shot or killed. Mm -hmm. And that way, the people coming to the the dinner, you know, they would have to walk over these chalk outlines. Anyway, kind of a weird, bizarre. That was my entry into political activism before Students for Legalization, before Normal, before anything. And that T-shirt reminded me of that that night. Oh, I remember there was two guys in suits came up and said, "Can we take your picture?" 
<laughs> and I looked down, I, I, I looked down at their shoes. And I was like, these guys have got to be secret service. They've just got to be. Right. And I said, sure, no problem. And I flipped them both the bird and they took my picture and, and that was that. Um, so I probably have a secret service file from 88. I would, wow. I would, I wouldn't, it would not surprise me. Um, but, uh, wow. yeah, I was not, I was not afraid of expressing myself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just thought this was interesting, jo Joshua. I didn't remember. I didn't know this. College students applying for federal financial grants were, were required to sign one more paper this year, a pledge not to buy drugs. <laughs> I mean, really? <laughs> Anyone who went through college tried drugs. Just, right. I mean, not everybody, but it was a time in your life when you had a little bit of freedom. You're figuring out who you were. Um, you know, you, you know, some some folks were skeptical of the whole just say no movement anyway, because it was a massive marketing campaign. And um, and of course, there's the youthful uh, attitude of, well, you can't tell me what to do, you know. But yeah, uh, yeah it uh, I don't remember that piece of paper, but I it does not surprise me. It says all. it says not surprisingly, no one refused. Um, and not surprisingly, it hasn't made a bit of difference to those who use illegal drugs. That's right. More security theater. Yep. And I thought it was interesting. This is cool to hear. Financial aid officers at the University of Illinois and elsewhere admit that the requirement is not an effective deterrent. They say they don't have the time to act as cops and turn in students. Three million students across the nation have signed the oath. The Department of Education yeah. says it can't prosecute anyone unless they are notified of their drug convictions. Students are delighting yes. in the confusion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, well, I mean, I, I may look like a long hair here, but um, I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be truthful if I, you know, if I, if you were to, if I were to say I wanted people to smoke cannabis, that that was not who I. Uh, I knew that they would do it regardless of whether I wanted it or not. Um, I, I felt that, you know, people have to make their own choices and the more information they had, the better their choices could be. And there are probably some people that absolutely should never, ever, ever, ever even toy with the idea. That was okay with me as well. Yeah. But if you're going to do something, you know, you need to be informed. You need to be educated. You need to, you know, be prepared to accept the consequences for your actions. Absolutely. Well said. And I just, something that I noted from the last time we talked to take a brief tangent that I love that you said, I hope you don't mind that I'm loosely quoting you. Uh, I am saying things that I don't figure you would have minded. They're good quotes. Uh, I think, and I agree with you on this, like we should, uh, we should not only treat cannabis in that way that you just described, which is like not necessarily encouraging people, but definitely not, using the criminal justice system to enforce it. So you said, but we could also extend that to all illicit illicit substances because you don't help the problem by demonizing users. You don't make the substances less dangerous and you're driving people to invent designer drugs to get around loopholes in the laws. That's very, very true. You're inflating the price. Um, yep. You're contributing just, to the black market You're and, and you're, 
and you're also uh, contributing to a lack of respect for the 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 emergency services people and the, the law enforcement that maybe yeah. had the best of intentions. True. But now you've got people completely disrespecting them because they're, you know, hard he hard headed, you know, um, you know, uh, they're asked to do almost an impossible job and they're put in harm's way for no real good reason. Uh, every effort that they made um, since 1937 did nothing to stop the, the illegal trade. It did nothing to reduce the demand. All it did was fill up the jails and, and line a bunch of pockets of people who profited off the drug war. Now, I, it was not a popular attitude in, in the 80s and 90s to, to say legalize all drugs. But in my mind, that was only the only way to legitimately redirect resources, right? And to get and to get people who needed and wanted help, the help that they need or that the help that they wanted. And um, no, again, I would never advocate that people go out and do hard drugs. I would, you know, that that was uh, that was not part of my position. But there were off there were other issues that I differentiated from the the uh mainstream legalization effort uh the tax and regulate um that was a very popular thing from about 1990 on uh, maybe even 89 on uh tax and regulate tax and regulate which was a very um it was a way to try to assuage more mainstream people right. that yeah we're kind of wasting some money why don't we just make some profit off you know, right now the cartels and the black market are getting all the profit. Why doesn't the state get on it in on it like they do with alcohol or, you know, uh, anything else that's legal? Uh, but I was never comfortable. with it. I, I parroted it. I, I more than likely said it on more than one occasion, but it was never something that I was comfortable with. I, I looked at it like tomatoes. You can grow all the tomatoes you want in your backyard. You can eat all the tomatoes you can grow. Now, if you start selling them in the store, now you got public health standards and you got safety issues. If you're transporting cargo ships full of tomatoes or, or semi trucks across borders, now you got intrastate commerce issues. Um, but essentially, it was a it was a plant that for you know thousands of years had been used by humankind, regardless of the politicians, regardless of the law enforcement, and in all that time, there were no direct overdoses from that from that plant. So I just um, I just figured that if they taxed and regulated it, it'd be a way for the state to uh, mess things up. Yeah, and I, that's actually kind of what I that's a good topic that I would like to close on today. But back to your point of it being a plant, yeah. it's been a plant that's been grown in Illinois. Well, we'll get to back to this as well, because I know you said you'd found stuff in the war hemp archives, and maybe you didn't have so much luck finding the the actual uh, the the World War II effort, you know, finding those archives. But um, it is, you know, we've all known that hemp grows naturally uh, and, and has been a part of uh, the fabric of America. And uh, here's a photo I'm displaying of in in 1989. It says marijuana grows on the block farm. This is in Peoria, Illinois. Yep. 
Um, wild well, marijuana, there... which is a common problem for Illinois farmers. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> we kind of created the problem because as we shipped um, hemp products uh, to, to processing plants and to distribution points, the seeds would escape the, the, the railroad uh, cars. And to this day, railroad tracks uh, across the Midwest are some of the, you know, some of the places where hemp still grows. Now, I, back then, we, the, the students would call it ditch weed because it wasn't really potent as, a, as an illicit drug. Mm -hmm. um, it's the same plant. It just wasn't, it wasn't a strain that was developed for the, for the THC. Um, but every year the police would dig up this ditch weed and claim that they confiscated a you million know, dollars worth of marijuana and all the students would laugh going, yeah, right. Who would smoke that stuff? Right. Um, so it made them look ridiculous to be honest. Yeah. And to your point, it says here, the wild marijuana growing across Illinois is descended from hemp grown by many farmers to produce rope during the during World War II. So it wasn't even yeah, cultivated for the purposes of consumption. Nope. Nope. And this is what its descendants or you know, the yeah. So and to your point, Josh, uh Joshua, I know a road right outside of uh Champagne since I've been growing up that's called uh the Green Mile, because hemp still grows there naturally to this day. Is that on the way to Rantoul? Yes, sir. You know where I'm talking about. Wow. <laughs> Holy crap. Unbelievable, huh? Wow. Gosh. Stuff like this is small world. Josh, I, Joshua, I was doing uh, the scans for what we're, uh, for the stuff we're looking at, at the library, yeah. at a library here in uh, Champaign, and somebody approached me and they said, look, I usually don't approach people that are scanning but you just you're plugging away over here what's what's going on and i was like have you ever heard of hash wednesday and they said yeah and i said if you i showed a picture of you you're we'll show it later but you're wearing like a benjamin franklin costume and he's like josh i know josh so uh i can tell <laughs> you uh, uh his name was is, his name steve no it's uh eric eric sizemore oh. yep 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 so he said, uh, he, he was like, wow, this is such a small he's, world he, thing. To this day, he's a big library guy. Yeah. Yep. That's where I saw him. So, yeah. Awesome. He, it was just kind of cool because, you know, it just seemed like such a small world thing. Uh, so anyways, that was 89. That's what I have for 89. There's a little bit of a drop off in 91. But what do you remember about the years, you know, so... I feel like we've done a pretty good job of touching on your first hash Wednesday. Um, I don't have, yeah, I don't have any, um, I don't have any newspaper clippings for 1990 or night. Uh, yeah, just 1990 actually. What do you remember about 1990? If I'm not mistaken, 1990 was the year that I was able to help facilitate a rather large coalition of campus organizations and i'm going to do this a disservice but i remember convincing the college democrats because of the uh the wasted money um oh no no uh, it's college democrats based on civil liberties uh there, of course there was the aclu uh, uh the student branch of the aclu the college republicans uh, i convinced to show up because 
um, I said, look, you know, medicine is not a political thing. You know, just as many conservatives get sick and could use cannabis medicine as as liberals. And and there was the issue of tax and regulate, which they they love that. Um, we had um, the uh, uh, LGBT or LGB, I think it was called LGB at the time, um, uh, campus group. Uh, I talked them into showing up and setting up because uh, Dennis Perone out in San Francisco had formed the very first, the country's very first cannabis buyers club uh, specifically to help address uh, and alleviate some of the suffering of AIDS patients. And um, so when I, you know, talk to, to them on that level, they're like, well, yeah, any, anything we can do to help um, AIDS patients uh, is a good thing. So, and there was a concerned scientist for the environment. Uh, they liked the industrial potential of cannabis hemp. Um, the, uh, yeah, there's Dennis Perone. Yeah, I just fact, wanted to I, show a quick picture of him. I think that he even came in 1990 to U of I. Uh, I just remember oh, being wow. super, super impressed by him. Um, but uh, yeah, so coalition building, well, that was, I think 1990 was the first time we really were able to step outside our comfort zone. And, and you know, because when you're an activist, people go, well, there's a lot worse problems in the world than the thing that you're worried about. But to me, the drug war touched on lots of them like there was overlap and so i was attempting to bridge those divides look there's things we probably disagree on fine but here's an issue that i think if we look at it the right way we can probably come to some agreement that it's not getting better it's not making things better it's not helping people and it's doing real damage to the fabric of our society and so coalition building was always something that that I was interested in. And uh, I think today, even today, the community building that I try to do stems back from that that knowledge that we don't have to agree on everything. But if we come together on some things, it can be quite impressive and, and quite helpful. Well, I so- think ni- 1990 might have been the year that we got, it might have been the the first year for Jack Herrera, I think it was the first year for Steve Hager uh, from High Times Magazine, uh, who grew up in Champaign-Urbana. Um, he was, I think he was living in New York at the time. Uh, I think 1990 was also, I believe it was the first, the year that we got Gatewood Galbraith. I think I'm pretty sure again, 33 uh, years ago. Um, did you say 1990? You thought that was, or I thought so. I think it actually might've been 91, perhaps 91. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cause here's Hager and here's Gatewood Galt. Galt okay. Brief. All right. So yeah, we our our coalition was still coalition building was still kind of young and you know, our legitimacy didn't let us bring in a lot of outsiders in eight in 90, but the fact that we were willing to try something different and, purposely try to get you know media attention i think is probably what helped us get some of the some of the out-of-staters uh more and more of the out-of-staters yeah 
And uh, I'll pull this clipping back up. I was just getting another picture that I think will be helpful for your... Um, I didn't want to skip too far ahead, though. I know it's not crazy far ahead, yeah, but yeah. we we just jumped from 90 to 91. Any other mentions? It sounds like you were doing a lot of coalition building, like you said, uh, during that year. Um, yeah, there, well, I always tried to do um, some kind of a gimmick uh, as well, something that would be that I knew the media would latch onto. Like the first year was that big giant uh, cannabis leaf. Mm -hmm. uh, I think in... 90 it seems to me that we had created a fake cannabis cigarette that was about five feet long <laughs> just to pass around the, the tops of the crowd mm -hmm. uh, you know we weren't doing civil disobedience but we could we could have some some fun some tongue-in-cheek fun with the with the concept and with the image of a, a massive a massive joint that's awesome. Um, so one of the things I wanted to give you the space to talk about that's mentioned in this, and I've got another picture to supplement. Um, gate, uh, sorry, uh, where where did I see the name? Um, oh, here it is. LV Musica, the first female to legally receive marijuana for glaucoma. Yeah, she was a neat lady. Um, I got a hold of her. She was living in Florida, and. Uh, convinced her to to basically attend multiple rallies in Illinois. However, she wasn't able to drive. So I had to literally uh, rent a uh, get a rental car and uh, drive her. I think we went to three three different rallies in Illinois, maybe four. Um, but she was one of the last few survivors of the uh, legal government cannabis program. And uh, I remember driving with her and 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 ma mainly listening. Um, mm -hmm. Oh yeah, Robert Randall. He was one of the others still alive at that time. Um, oh, that's eighty eighty three. But yeah, he uh, or eighty six. Um, I just wanted to show the can because no, most people don't even know. Like this is how the government gave it to you. But sorry, you were about to say something. Yeah, the, the research triangle was cannabis that uh, the government grew down in I believe it was Mississippi. Mm -hmm. My memory serves me right. But the problem was they did absolutely zero to to um, make the strain better medicine. And so from, you know, the um, 70s until the 90s, it was exactly the same, you know, uh, plant with no better efficacy for medicine. So I remember asking Elvie Musica, you know, how is how does how does the marijuana or the cannabis that you get from the, from the government, is it any good? And she said, Oh no, it's total crap. I'm like, well, why do you do it then? She goes, Oh, I just get the can. And then I put whatever I want inside of it because nobody will know the difference. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah, that is brilliant. That's exactly why I wanted to bring up that story. And, uh, to your point, uh, I remember this article from back in the day, I'm going to share this uh hope it's still sharing hold on a second i gotta switch this i'll share this article here and it says the headline is the federal government has no idea how to grow marijuana these photos prove it so these are pictures or this is a picture of the cannabis that was grown uh probably in in, in mississippi. mississippi yeah university yep. of mississippi 
I was right. Yep. Yeah. So. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, I mean, it was better than him. Sure. But it was as you low look grade, at that. It's like as low ugh. grade as you could. Yeah. Just, just utter shake. Yeah. So, so sorry. You said, uh, she kept the can cause she'd put her own joints in it. Right. Oh yeah. She rolled up her own street, you know, underground cannabis and, yeah. and like, who's going to question, how do you know it's not the government? She's got her license. She's got her, you know, prescription on the can. <laughs> we'll get back to this later when, when we talk about some of the shortcomings of maybe policy. Uh, but it's funny because that technique extends today when cannabis is legal, people mm-hmm. will purchase it from their illicit dealer. And in order to like avoid trouble with the police, they'll put mm-hmm. it in a dispensary container because then yep. the police are like, Oh, well it's legal. Right. So it's interesting yeah. to hear how that's lived on. Uh, but anyways, uh, yeah. Yeah, crazy stuff. Um, it looks like the next time I have some headlines, actually, it's a, a press release you made, is in 93. So could you fill in the gaps on... Uh, so that headline we just shared was from 91 when Hager came and uh, the medical cannabis patient from the federal government. Also, I thought it was interesting that... Uh, yeah, I don't want to breeze over this. A Democratic candidate for governor in Kentucky came. So that was ninety one. Yeah, 90, 91. Yeah, I'll pull it back up here. Um, yeah, it says uh, yeah, so- Stephen Hager will be joined by uh, Hash Wednesday by a Democratic candidate for governor in Kentucky who advocates marijuana legalization to improve his state's economy. Yeah, um, Gatewood Galbraith. Um, the. I'm pretty That's sure the the way that we got him to come up because you know it was I think it was maybe a five or six hour drive I can't remember but um, was because we would have media there and the guy was definitely hungry for media. This is the Democratic candidate who was driving around Kentucky with Willie Nelson in a uh, diesel automobile run on on hemp fuel. Um, this was also the time when Willie Nelson got in trouble with the IRS, ostensibly because he played fast and loose with his money. I always thought it was because once he started getting involved in politics, he scared the bejesus out of people. Like, oh, my God, if he gets all his fans to support this Dem- Democratic governor guy, you know, we might have a we might have some trouble on our hands. So I, I always felt like, you know, he got railroaded. Um, but uh Picture of Willie and Gatewood, or uh, oh, beautiful. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, interesting stuff there. And he was a suit, so this was another opportunity to say, look, not everybody who supports drug policy change and cannabis reform is a hippie. Yeah, they're not all tie dyes. There's business people. There's politicians. There's law enforcement. There's all kinds of people from all walks of life. You think that there must be a better way. Yeah. Here's a little thing I didn't even notice in this article from 1991. At the very bottom, it says uh, the Justice Department has successfully subpoenaed the addresses of readers who ordered pot growing products through ads in high times. Yeah, that was bad. That was a bad time. It was basically uh, mostly a paraphernalia bus. Um you know, I don't know what year it was Cheech and Chong got in trouble, but for their paraphernalia store in California, it was probably around that time. 
but yeah, the government was you know, trying to get records on people who bought things that were not cannabis. Just, you know, more of the uh, ridiculous scapegoating waste of taxpayer money. Yeah. Well said. Um, well, again, uh, I don't have, so that was 91. I don't have anything for 92. Uh, do you recall anything about that before we go to one of your first press releases that I can see from 93? So 92 was the year that the Netscape came out. It was, uh, it was developed by some students at the University of Illinois. And the university said, you can't make money on a student project. And they said, okay, well, fine, we're, we quit. We'll go form this company called Netscape. <laughs> um, and that was literally, the, you know, university's pivotal pivotal moment uh in in the in the history of the internet um although bandwidth was still a problem so we would surf uh, some of us would surf without pictures on unless <laughs> unless the website was really good and then we'd wait for the pictures to download but um i don't recall anything specific from that year's rally uh cool. Our attendances would wane from, you know, it could be as little as 300 to 600 people. Um, I think even later in the 90s, we might have had, you know, some two, three, four hundred people. But there were some years when there was over a thousand. Uh, I don't know that the university ever reported or that the local media ever reported on big crowds at the quad. They didn't want a repeat of the 70s um, and, and early 80s. Uh, I don't think the crowds ever got to be that as big as they were in 87 uh, when uh, or 88, um, which was unfortunate. And, you know, there were there were some original old timers who felt like it was our fault that we weren't advocating civil disobedience. And that's why the numbers were down. I I didn't take it personal. I just accepted the criticism and like, look. We all do what we can do, and and at least we're doing something. So, yeah. Um, and I remember one thing you told me. It's like, you know, you weren't necessarily advocating for civil disobedience, but if somebody insisted, you're like, "Look, go ahead." But I have plenty to say still, and I feel like I have plenty to offer this movement. So I'm just not interested in becoming a martyr at this time. You know. Yeah, I knew that. You know, it uh, for me anyway. The, Even though you might have respected that, like, look, we can respect yeah. martyrs, uh, but you just it wasn't in your plans. That's not how you saw no, yourself and, contributing to the movement. And it was sometime in the mid 90s, might have been early 90s that. Um, actually, I believe the first time was when Jack Herrera came, we would try these things like um, distraction, uh, camouflage. Um where we would roll up, you know, a thousand Damiana herbal cigarettes because it smelled funny, but it wasn't cannabis. And so if, you know, if somebody got, it would be hard for the law enforcement to know what, what was causing the funny smell. Right. So we would dilute the, the air around the rally with just these herbal, herbal cigarettes. That was one uh, dilution um, tactic. The other thing we did was we knew that there were people cooking, um edible uh, uh cookies and, and brownies now um there wasn't anything we were going to be able to do to stop them uh however what we could do was create some that were not adulterated 
And there again, if you, you know, you want to arrest me for a brownie, you better hope it's one of those bad, you know, bad ones. Cause you know, it might not be, <laughs> and then you're going to look like a fool. So again, we, we kind of diluted uh, or distracted uh, through dilution. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that story, I was so excited to hear you uh, tell that story just because it's so ingenious and it's not illegal. It's just confusing. Nope. Absolutely. <laughs> Nothing they could do to stop us. Yeah. And if they'd have walked in in my house when we were making them, it wouldn't be anything we'd get in trouble for. We're just making a bunch of brownies. <laughs> Are you able to take credit for that idea or did somebody else cook that up? Oh, that was, that was one of mine. Oh, it was nice. That's yeah. smart, dude. Oh, yeah. smart. you know what else happened in the, I was, I think it was a year after Jack career came or maybe his, maybe his was the first year. Um, when the story started getting around in this, not a new story because it's been told since the seventies, but the, um, the story about George Washington being a hemp farmer. Yeah. Um, I had friends who worked at the Kinko's copy shop in Champaign-Urbana. And I took some donations that I had received uh, from locals and created self-inking stamps that basically had word bubbles that said, I grew hemp. So we, we, we use these self-inking stampers to stamp as many $1 bills with George Washington word bubbles saying, I grew hemp, I grew hemp, I grew hemp, I grew hemp. If I had to guesstimate, I think in, in the two or three years that I was really actively doing that, thousands, thousands of dollars. And and you could go to a party in Champaign-Urbana and see these things on people's uh, people's refrigerators. Oh, there you go. Holy moly. I haven't thought about that in years. Cool to but see that. That is really, really cool. That's 99. So, yeah, I guess we, we I mean, we, we always had one on campus, at least one. Mm -hmm. I think my first batch was like 10 of them. And I left them at rallies. So when we went to Carbondale, we'd leave one. We went to uh, normal Bloomington normal. We would leave one. When we had a, a visitor come down from the, the um, Chicago chapter, we gave them one. like, I wasn't, just trying to do it in Champaign-Urbana. I wanted to spread all over the Midwest. Um, and uh, that was another kind of, I don't know. I never quite understood the legality of it, but I knew that in, in circuses and, and carnivals, they would laser etch pennies and put artwork on coins. And I thought, well, this is just adding value. It's not really defacing i was using water-based ink but um you know it was a, a political message and this was definitely before the where's george you know track this track this dollar bill uh campaign later in the in the later 90s um but that that was one of the really fun marketing uh didn't have our name on it didn't nobody took credit for it but when you go to a party you start stamping them and everybody whip out their dollar bills like do mine do mine do mine <laughs> and spend the whole night just stamping dollar bills can i ask you again do you, did that start at the university of illinois is that one of your brain children i don't think that the word bubble started at u of i but the the self-inking did i believe that i first saw handwritten bubbles at one of the grateful dead shows on the east coast 
Mm. And I'm like, well, that's a great idea, but man, I'm not going to sit there and hand draw word bubbles. That just takes too much time. So mm-hmm. I, I think I'm pretty sure I saw the idea at a Grateful Dead show. I thought, wow, imagine if we could do this in mass. And <laughs> so, uh, so that 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 was an improvement on that original concept. Yeah, that's so cool. That's so cool. Well, um, I, I am trying not to fast forward us to 93 if there were anything else you wanted to cover, but this is from 93. Hope this isn't oh, still yeah. your cell so, phone number. <laughs> I'm just joking. I don't think it is. Yeah, if, if, if you look that up on the keypad, the number 3675674, it spells for hemp. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah unbelievable Clever. coincidence unbelievable coincidence oh so it's uh, just a coincidence absolutely wow. You, wow. you didn't get vanity phone numbers back then especially not you know college kids yeah. um this was a year when uh, 93 i think we were trying to kind of rebrand ourselves a little bit um so we we went through several different name changes to try to feel out you know what the best approach would be so there was the uh i think there was students for legalization of marijuana there was the uh, u of i normal uh then the illinois drug ethics alliance this is when i started basically putting my pro-drug legalization philosophy you know basically kind of letting people know that this all of the things that the cases that we make for cannabis could be applied to other other drugs as well. So, but the acronym is why why that name was created. Idea, idea. yeah, I like that. Just to plant the idea that you know the drug war is a bunch of hoo ha. Yeah, Let's see, we had Dick Cohen. Oh yeah, uh, normal. Eric Sterling. Eric Sterling was a master. He was criminal justice policy. Um, Jay Miller, uh, State State of Illinois American Civil Liberties Union, Dennis Perone. Oh, what a wonderful guy! Brownie Mary. Brownie Mary. Yeah. Um, she was she accompanied Dennis Perone. Um, Alvin Mazika, Jack Herrera, Ben Mazzone, George Tassif. Yeah, top Illinois against seizure. Uh, Katewood Galbraith. Wow. 93. Yeah. And That's so amazing. this is page one. I got page two, and I think there might be page three here. Uh, looks like you can see different locations, which is cool. Yeah. So, one of the things when we, you know, in these early years of the, the quote unquote hemp tour, or uh, we figured if we're going to use our time and our money to promote our local stuff, we might as well promote non-local stuff to give people a sense that this isn't just in this one town. You know, this this uh, call for reform, this call for change was happening all over the place. And unless you were a subscriber to High Times Magazine, you, you really wouldn't know that. Um, so this was, uh, yeah, this, this, this is Champaign, Normal, Springfield. St. Louis, Missouri. Oh yeah, rally under the arch. I'm pretty sure I made that one. Carbondale. Yeah, DeKalb. I don't think I made the DeKalb one. Rockford. I don't think I made that year. 
And I can't recall if I made the Windy City Weed Fest in Chicago, although I do know I, I spoke with the organizer on several occasions. Um, yeah, the criminalization of all casual drug users. Yeah, this was definitely, you know, me pushing to let people know that um, using the criminal justice system was not the best way to to affect change for, for, for drugs. Yeah. Yeah. I like that you say the cr criminalizing casual users creates a tremendous burden on the taxpayer and criminal justice system alike. Through our yep. statewide alliance, we will work to change archaic and damaging drug laws. It's good stuff. It's kind of hard to believe that 20 year old would come up with some of this stuff. Yeah, dude. And that you were just doing it like, I don't know, you put your freaking name on this, man. Like Joshua Salone, like you put your freaking <laughs> yeah. name on it. I don't know. Like I, I'll, I'll get to this later, but it's crazy. Like it wasn't only until a few years ago that I really started putting it on my chest that I use cannabis and stuff. And I live in the year of, you know, 2000 and, you know, it's 23 now, but I'm talking just a few years ago, even I would be very closeted about my use of drugs. And here you are as a college student in the fucking... 90s putting it <laughs> well, on paper I, you know i wasn't i was vocal but i knew somebody had to take um somebody with very little risk needed to be a, a scapegoat or needed to be uh, a spokesperson right so i wanted the local police to have my phone number absolutely wanted them to because i figured they're on the bad end of this whole deal. And I, I figured that if they had arrested me wrongly, that, you know, they, they were pretty sure that I would raise a stink and there'd be 50 or a hundred people showing up to, you know, protest at the steps of the jail. Um, so I didn't count on that, but I just figured that somebody needed to stand up and there, and I, by the way, there were other people involved here. It was not just me. Um, I was the one willing to put my name and phone number on stuff, but I wasn't, there's no way that anything that I did could have got done without other, you know, other good people uh, in, in Champaign-Urbana. Yeah. And uh, I just wanted to ask you, is this like, were you maybe buying a, a, like a radio PSA or something? Like, what do you think this was? It looks like because it says 23 seconds, 53 words. It seems like it was yeah, definitely. public service. It wasn't a, yeah, it wasn't a purchase PSA, but I think I had picked up a, a book on uh, public relations. Oh, cool. And I was learning about I was learning about, you know, press releases and public service announcements. And, you know, I was always thinking, well, what have we not done before? You know, what else could we do? I'm not mm -hmm. afraid of failure. Still, I'm not. Um, and. I had never heard of another organization putting out PSAs to, you know, challenge the drug war. Um, I figured, what the heck? Let's throw it out there, see what happens. I mean, it doesn't cost anything, and uh, uh, it was it was a way to kind of subtly get advertising on. Uh, I don't know what the radio station at that time was. Oh, WEFT was one of the stations, uh, ninety point one, great college radio station in the Champaign. Uh, but there was another one as well. We, we, we were trying to get attention for the events and attention for the for the cause, and that 
might have been the first year I did a PSA, actually. Could very well have been the first year I did a press release in PSA. So you could see, like, as my thinking kind of evolved, so did my tactics, so did my strategies. And, and um, you know, there was a lot of people in the movement that were like, well, give it a shot. What the heck? It's your idea. Run with it. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. And a lot of people they would say, oh, I would never do that, you know? But, but yeah, I remember that phone number. 21744HEMP. Unbelievable. Yeah. Like you say, the synchronicity about some of the some of the details in this story is crazy. And I'll, I'll we'll be getting to that soon here. But uh I just wanted to take a moment to dwell on the fact that yeah, you're really coming up with some professional looking stuff, which I think part of your goal not only was was to get the word out in a more formalized fashion, but would you agree that maybe also part of it was to show, like you said earlier, you said, Well, that guy was a suit. I think it was you showing that, you know, even though you espouse these beliefs, you still know, like you can run the ropes, you know, you can be normal and support normal. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, you know, there, there's always people who will judge, judge other people based on how they look, you know, the, the long hair didn't necessarily help me. Um, but my academic approach and my, my desire for legitimacy to be able to look, you know, grandma in the eye and say, grandma, I'm not trying to upset the apple cart. I just want justice. I just want peace. I just want fairness. And you don't have to be a party animal to want those things. And to assume that everybody who wants those things is a party animal is, is, is not right. Um, so yeah, uh, to normalize uh, pro legalization efforts. Basically, my long term goal in in, in the nineties uh, was just just to keep the torch, you know, just keep the flame alive, keep the hope alive. Um, I didn't know even back then, and even today, I don't know what the right answer is. But I knew that if we stopped talking about it, we'd never find a better way. And so, you know, sometimes we just we focus heavy on the, you know, the industrial and um, uh, uses. We, sometimes we focus on the environmental benefits. Sometimes we focus on the, the financial benefits. We kind of were playing with a lot of different angles back then to, to see what would resonate. Yeah. And uh, any other notes on... Um... I'm holding myself back from a thought that I'm saving for later. If you can't tell, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I've got it noted, so I won't forget, but any other notes on 93 or 90, uh, yeah, 93 is what we were just talking about. I've got some interesting pictures from 94 I can share, but wanted to give you space. Yeah, I'm trying to recall. Um, I know it's probably hard to recall consecutively too. So I wanted to just, or chronologically, I wanted to acknowledge that, but I am trying to just give you the space, you know, in case, uh, any memories yeah, pop the up. The pictures definitely help. I was a person who I always wanted to be me. Mm -hmm. And and that meant trying to be a little creative, a little wacky, a little fun. And so some years I might show up with you know a tie on. And other years it was just, oh, I'm gonna be, I'm just gonna, you know, wear a tie-dye shirt and have fun. 
and you know and try to educate my my college colleagues. Uh, several years, I I tried costumes, uh, especially in the late nineties. Not, you know, yeah, it was somewhat gimmicky, but it got attention and nobody else was really doing it. So I figured, what have I got to lose? If if they laugh at me, I can take that. Um, Yeah, there you go. 1996. Yeah, the year I was born. No kidding. Yep. Oh, I, Sorry. I don't know. I if, feel like I've dated you twice now on this. No. <laughs> dressed, dressed as a colonist because George went Washington grew hemp. Uh, yeah, that was a three. They they reported 300, but you can almost bet that it was, you know, 500, 600. Yeah, almost always. That We always complain that they never get the numbers right. <laughs> yeah, it's part yeah. of the trying to keep it down you know but um sorry for right. jumping a year uh no, that's I, right. that's i've got a few things that might bring up some memories for you um let's <laughs> let's keep it up with hash wednesday for a second um sure. i just want to see if you remember this uh, and then there's a, a completely separate event that i've got a flyer from that you might recall um take a brief tangent on that but do you remember this this is from uh 90 uh, hold on a second. Let me double check. 94. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I, I always loved artists, you know, kind of came down from my family. Mm-hmm. So it, we wanted, if, in case nobody showed up at the rally, we wanted to leave a mark. And of course we knew that spray paint would have got us arrested. So we would decorate the, um, the quadrangle with chalk. We'd encourage, we'd buy chalk. We distribute chalk. We encourage artists with chalk. We would decorate the, um, the the horizontal surfaces, but we'd also decorate the vertical surfaces of the steps leading up to the Illini Union, because there was a little bit of a lip, so it it couldn't just get rained off. Um, the uh, this was more of a you know a creative way that even students who never went to the rally for the next few days would be walking over the the remnants. Now, in the 70s and the 80s, the remnant was garbage. The The quad was just littered. It was a mess. And we tried really hard not to leave a big mess. But we would leave art. Oh, you got muted again. Thank you. Um, no worries. Uh, so another, oh, this is the somewhat unrelated Actually, there's another article here. Maybe this will remind you of what the weather was like this day. They say uh, in 94, the weather helped draw the crowd. Was it a nice day? It says sunshine and balmy weather helped to draw several hundred people to the annual Hash Wednesday rally today at the University of Illinois. And here's a quote by you. Yeah, that's um, – I'm so thankful that the that other kids showed up. Um, yeah, it's not the thousands – uh, we certainly didn't attract beer drinkers and you know people bringing pony kegs out to the quad, uh, which might have been you know thirty percent of the old days. Um, so, but just that anybody would show up, well, I, I'm just so thankful. Uh, that was a year I met a local, um, yeah, Charles Atkins. He uh, was a chemotherapy survivor, and he credited 
his personal use, private use of cannabis with helping him get through a terrible, terrible time in his, uh, in his cancer. Um, that was, uh, you know, there's all these stories that tug on your heart, you know, um, of people that, uh, either that they got arrested for a stupid reason, just for cannabis, or that they used cannabis to alleviate some of their medical conditions, whether it's seizures or, or, you know, um, uh, you know, insomnia or, or cancer or, you know, whatever. I would hear all kinds of stories. Um, but. Uh, yeah. He said, I had to go into the criminal element to save my life. Personally, yeah. I don't think that's right. That's just horrible. It's absolutely horrible. And, and I got to say this Luca Marshak, Marshak, a UI sophomore. I love what they said. They shouted at passerbys. Do not hide in your rooms and smoke marijuana. Do it on the quad. <laughs> yeah i don't think she was one of the official organizers but like you know yeah we didn't stop her <laughs> yeah hey freedom um, of speech <laughs> exactly uh oh here we go uh habitat for humanity was out that year take um, back the night. yeah take back the night um there's a band that helped support us i mean at a certain point we became an excuse for even those who we're a little bit on the fence about uh, drug policy reform. They're like, look, they're all going to show up. We might as well go out there, you know, and fine. We're happy to have them. Yeah, that's cool. The sunny day brought a conglomeration of causes to the quad. Wow. I think that was the first year I used the quote. Uh, the only people to die of marijuana were, were the people hung from hemp ropes. Oh, I just uh, saw that. Yeah. Yeah, I used that in a, a rally in, in in Indiana where I got up on a stage with an actual hemp noose. And uh, although the crowd loved it, I, I felt a little weird, you know, when I when I got sure. off the, the stage. And I, I uh, yeah, it, I don't know why, but I just remember. I don't think after that year, I don't think I really used that that uh, that hook. That prop, yeah. Um, here's what I thought might bring back some memories. Oh man, yeah, save the farm festival. That was um, that was led by Ben Mazel, Matt out of Madison, Wisconsin, the gentleman who uh, organized the uh, hash bash in Madison, and uh, it was a, a pro legalization campout basically, and the funds, or at least part of the funds from that campout. Uh, were used to actually help that farmer save his save his family farm. Um, it was it was a pretty crazy. It was the it was probably the closest thing I ever got to like what they call the rainbow family gatherings. Yeah, you know, there's a stage for music. There was a a, a first aid tent. There was a mm. a couple of different kit, kitchen tents. Sounds like um, it was the first like festival. That's that's what they call it nowadays, like kind of music festivals where you'll have that type of setup. Yeah, you know? I um, uh, one of my local friends and I uh, traveled up there, um, ostensibly to do security. Uh, I I wanted to float. I was like, man, I'll fill in. I'm not sure how good I'll be at security, but um, I'll just you know find where they need me. Sometimes they need me at the gate. Sometimes they need me picking up garbage sometimes they need me directing uh, traffic um 
you know, sp spotting people jumping the fence, um, you know, whatever. I was just kind of a floater, but um, yeah, that was uh, that was a pretty crazy time. I remember that there was a farm next door that had a uh, a big barn, and the local. Well, I assume it was local from what I remember. It could have been state um, law enforcement were using um, cam uh, long distance cameras and binoculars. I, we had somebody with a telescope and you could totally see that the entire event was being observed by some dubious outside party. So every so often we'd, we'd get a, a bunch of the you know, celebrators to, to come over in a mass and moon them. Uh, just so they'd get a good picture. That's that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, what that's are they going to do? Shoot us from far away? Like, you know. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that was that was that was a pretty wild gathering. Yeah. Well, uh, to my recollection, he he did save his farm. Oh, good. I was gonna. I was literally just about to ask that before we moved on to ninety five. Did it save the farm? <laughs> yeah, so. I think he had. I, if I remember right, he had to. He had to raise over ten thousand dollars, which that was a lot of money in the nineties. Sure. Um, and uh, pretty sure we made that. That's awesome. Well, uh, here's something from '95: uh, Cannabis Convocation to Tout Plants Benefits Hash Wednesday. The annual celebration of marijuana on campus hits the quad today at high noon. Some local residents are saying that with low key publicity done by organizers to advertise the festival. The event might just go up and smoke, pot smoke. That is, yeah. Uh, I don't remember if that was a big year or not. Um, it may not have been, but you know the the. It's funny. A lot of times in the media, they were always looking to to get there a are, Josh. Oh yeah, I'm actually wearing a a hemp uh, fabric shirt there. Sorry, um, you were saying uh, to get a jab in. Yeah, like you know, tongue in cheek, make fun of the make fun of the people who who like cannabis or want cannabis reform. Um, again, I wasn't, I didn't care if nobody came out. I was going out regardless. Um, and uh, you know, it, it it certainly would have gathered more attention and more attendees if we had openly advocated for civil disobedience. But because we didn't, the university could hardly, you know tell us we couldn't do what we were doing um well i remember actually i made the t-shirt that i'm wearing um yeah this this looks like another one where the um uh, i'm glad they actually got the kids you can see that there's actually you know there are kids hanging out yeah no we didn't i don't think we scared people off necessarily oh and sorry i don't mean to say like kids kids i mean college kids for listeners yeah, yeah. uh and they're 18 to 24 yeah um yep. so yeah interesting to see steven hager mentioned in that as well um uh yeah a bunch of interesting stuff here um I thought it was interesting. They they mention you and they take this picture of you and they're they say he, you're expected to be on the quad today to show your support. <laughs> so, yeah, I um I believe you know I was still trying to work my way through college, so there were there were some years when um, 
you know, some of my compatriots had moved on to other states and um, other uh, um, other activities. Like Debbie Goldsberry went out to California and formed the first dispensary in Berkeley, I think it was. Um, and so, yeah, there there were there were a few years there that there there, there were only a, a small number of us kind of keeping hope alive. Yeah, here are the invitations to Hash Wednesday in April in in ninety five. It's cool to see. Yeah, I remember. I, I separate them. I've got a bunch, which is kind of cool. Um, and That's, then I've also got these. Uh, I don't oh, know how you me. use these. They're dot matrix stickers. We'd put them all over the place: bulletin boards, light posts, bus stops, um, in you know, <clears throat> in uh, newspapers that people would buy. <laughs> like we just would spread them everywhere. This is my favorite one because I've made this joke in the past. Because we like to have, well, I think actually my first guest from higher education was from the University of Illinois now that I think about it. And I just could not help myself. I had to make the same pun you did. Come celebrate 20 plus years of higher education. Yeah, I was always looking for a gimmick, always looking for a tagline, um, you know, experimenting with ways to plant, you know, to make things more memorable. Um, but that funny thing about those stickers is you can tell it's a dot matrix printer. Uh, which nobody uses anymore. Yeah, you, mm, you, you mm, said that. I'm like, mm. I don't really know what that is, but I'll run with you on that. <laughs> it would, it was, it was like a sheet feeder. Mm. Um, so there's like a wheel with uh, spokes on it that would push the label or the piece of paper, and then you'd have to tear those edges off. Mm. Uh, but these were mailing labels, is what they were. I'm like, hey, you get a whole bunch of those for pretty cheap. We could like put some on the bleachers at the U of I Stadium. We could yep. put them in all the bathrooms and all the dorm rooms. <laughs> we, uh, it was probably my, the closest I ever got to like graffiti was, you know, putting yeah. stickers in places they shouldn't be. Yeah. It's a press release from, from that year. So you were announcing it about a month ahead in March. Wow. Cool to see that, huh? It is. I uh, I left a lot of the records behind with uh, other students, so I didn't really carry anything except memories with me through through time as I as I grew older. Yeah. Um. So this is an interesting one. Not not much to this. I don't think that Josh, you're mentioned in this, but there's a uh, a panel discussion that was happening in Champaign and it was talking about where is it here I'm not seeing it for some reason there was something there was going to be oh here it is it was a conversation about drug-free schools so I accidentally threw it in this folder it doesn't necessarily yeah, no. have to do with hash Wednesday I've got a bunch of champagne related drug stories in here as well though so my my recollection my recollection is that the um the uh, mayor uh, at that time, I could be off, but my recollection was that he was not a big just say no guy, but he couldn't, he also couldn't, he found it politically dangerous to even show any kind of support. There was a lot of times where police officers, politicians, school administrators, business owners would say, look, 
I'm not against what you're doing, but you'll never get me to come out and say it. <laughs> like, well, darn it. That they're like, you know, you're putting all the burden on, on us. You all know, right. the, the, the few brave ones, you know? Yeah. That's funny. Oh, how the times change. Um, 96. Is this a poster you may have made? That was definitely me. The drug war is over if you want it to be. <laughs> yeah. And th- this is uh, one we looked at earlier with a picture of you and your uh, Josh George Washington uh, yep. costume. By that by that point, I was in full swing with the, the ink stampers. I grew hemp ink stampers. Yeah, and I just have to say, Joshua, you looked so cool with your Ray-Bans and... <laughs> Like I, I feel like well, that I wasn't could, really the it wasn't the intention it was more just to stand out like a sore thumb yeah well you looked cool i feel like i would have been like i want to hang out with that guy it, the very first time i ever appeared in a newspaper was the daily illini uh i believe it was in the fall of of 87 i was blowing giant bubbles the size of like small vehicles <laughs> I went out with a bucket of soap and a special uh, bubble wand with a loop on it and was just captivating people on, you know, these massive giant bubbles. And um, I, I didn't go out there to get publicity, but that, that was the first time I ever appeared in the daily line. I'm pulling it up here. <laughs> Is that you? That's me. Yeah. That was 98. Well, maybe was this is a different one. Maybe you were just bringing it back, bringing yeah, back yeah, the bubbles no, or something. Exactly. Yeah, I um, was, I would, a lot of times I would, I would bring out incense, I would bring out bubbles, anything to add some tactile or visual interest. Um, I love this I picture because you can really, like, I feel like Josh, Joshua, if you ever come back to the, if you ever come back to Champagne, well, we should try to recreate this picture because <laughs> we could. Yeah. I mean, we don't uh, have to. I, we don't have to put you in a costume, but we could maybe get a chair for you, right? <laughs> yeah, I think that by eighty uh, ninety eight, though, um, the the organization um, had started to dwindle in in members. It was harder and harder to get um, people to come out and people to do things, and so I'm like, well, whatever. I'm gonna do what I do. And just let the chips fall where they may. I wasn't I wasn't scared of like I said, if nobody showed up, at least I did. Here you are in nineteen ninety-seven. I think ninety-seven or ninety-eight, I got in a little bit of trouble because I brought out a fake revolutionary rifle. Long I've rifle. got a picture of that as well, actually. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and it was... actually even mentions that as you said, they did check you. Because they no, were concerned. They, they're like, what? We got reports of you know, somebody with a firearm. I'm like, well, it's fake. Come on. Get, oh, actually, slack. you know what? That may have been this year, but you're actually pictured with it in a different year. Because look on this second page here, it says Sloan carries a replica colonial rifle, which a UI police officer checked Wednesday to make sure it wouldn't fire. <laughs> Again, I was looking for a little bit of controversy without you know, committing civil disobedience. And here you go again. Sloan also brings along a life-size cutout of President Clinton smoking a joint, a fake, he assures, and a slew of bumper stickers proclaiming marijuana's benefits. I smoke marijuana and I vote. Just say yo. 
homegrown Illinoisan. I like that. <laughs> These are all just experimental slogans that I was putting out on sticker paper. Um, that's hilarious. I forgot yeah. those slogans, but yeah, that that was uh, that was all just weird publicity tech, and that's that's um, you know some of the uh, the hemp museum. Oh, yeah. I see now. Yeah, I can see. Hundred percent hemp. Yeah, very cool. And you know, people would. I I I think I still do have a book from that original hemp museum from like eighteen seventy seven. It was a history of America book, uh, <laughs> and definitely printed on hemp paper. I think that was something that I did keep over the years. Because I was kind of a history buff, but the fact that it was printed on hemp made it even cooler. Yeah. Do you think it's that book? I think so. I think that's wow. the book. Wow. That's so cool. Yeah. And of course, the quad is kind of a big space. So even if there was 500 people, if they're all spread out, it doesn't look really all that populated. Right. And to be to be fair, on any given sunny day, even without a rally, there'd be people out on the quad. Good so point. I was taking advantage of, you know, just a good a good day in the sun. Yeah. Well, we're getting into the era of color. Uh before then everything was in black and white. I'm just joking. Yeah. Um here's a picture of you with your uh with your musket. Your... Yeah. Uh this was the year that one of the promotional pieces that I used to try to get people to show up was a fake printed dollar bill with Clinton's face on it. And the slogan on the back was the drug war is as phony as a $3 bill. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's funny. I can yeah. see your Bill Clinton joint smoking thing earlier. I was wanting to see it earlier, but now I can kind of see it. Is <laughs> yeah. that a joint hanging out of his mouth? Is that what it's supposed it to be? It is. Yeah. Or it was. Um, Very cool. But yeah, I had a, a, a bell, you know, that I would ring just to get attention. Um, oh, I see your bell here. Yeah. Yeah. Hear ye, hear ye. <laughs> yeah. Uh, first printing press in America, hemp sales. Yeah, it was a hemp, hemp thing. Um, yeah, so at this point, I wasn't actually a student. I, I graduated in, I believe it was 94, 95. Um, and so uh, there really, there were no student activists at that time. Uh, even if it dwindles to a one-man campaign, he, Sloan pledges to be at his usual post every Hash Wednesday. Yeah, I was a bit of a diehard. There's no question. <laughs> uh, only about 200 people's gathered. Yeah, I, I don't. Again, it's hard for me to know if that was a real number or not. They we always complain that they don't get it right, but yeah. Uh, 1998. Beats the rain. There's Charles Atkins in the background. That's him. Yeah, that's the cancer patient that survived. Um, that was kind of an iffy weather year, ninety-eight. Yep, it's always been on the third week of April at high noon. Sloan said. Yeah, this was before the era of four twenty, uh, which became a big thing in the in the. Uh, in the 2000s mm -hmm. uh and late late 90s like 99 um 420 was a, a reference to a, a police call sign i think about you know we have a 
somebody smoking cannabis. That was, you know, we have a 420. Uh, but um, the original tradition was the third Wednesday in, in, in April. And occasionally it would fall on April 15th. So we would call it like a tax day protest. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, American Civil Liberties Union. Wow. Can't believe you found all this stuff. This, and you know, again, some of this happened pre internet, like prior to 1992. Sure. And from 92 to 98, 99, um, even a lot of those records on the internet are just purged. They're just old. Um, they, you know, they didn't get history doesn't always get kept. Um, especially if it's a, you know, a controversial thing. Yeah. And that's, that's why I, that's why I love what we're doing here. We're not only releasing this video of you and I talking about it, but I'll be releasing this entire archive so that people can do with it what they want. And so that hopefully it, it lives on. It'd be, it'd be funny to come up with uh, the drug wars phony as a $3 bill. Um, there was also another, another sticker that I had uh, made up for me called spleef Illini. Yeah. And it was, um, Unfortunately, at a certain after about a year, it, um, some of the Native American activists thought it was disrespectful, and I discontinued it because I, I really meant no disrespect. Sure. What I meant for it to happen was for it to blend in, and nobody would just pay it any attention. It just looked like Chief Alina went until they looked closer, right? And then they'd be like, "Wait a minute, <laughs> what's wrong with that?" <laughs> um, so, so it was it was. Yeah, it it was similar to if I could. Uh, I remember you told me that one of your friends did this. Uh, I'll share it on the screen here. But you were doing a similar thing where it was blend in, like you said. You meant no disrespect. You're trying to make something that blended in, and if you just glanced at it, you wouldn't realize it's a cannabis reference. But if you really looked at it, then you'd realize it yeah. was. And the one you told me about was "Thank you for pot smoking," the American Cannabis Society. Yeah, he was. Uh, I'm pretty sure he was out of Wisconsin as well. And uh, his goal was to put these over all of the thank you for not smoking signs. <laughs> and again, that, you know, that always just encouraged me. He was an old guy too. He was not, not a young whippersnapper. And I'm like, man, if he's, if he can do that, I can do anything. You know, <laughs> like, um, And so uh, sometimes it's stuff that you need to stick into people's heads. And sometimes the process of discovery is what will make it, you know, resonate or stick in people's heads. Yeah. Well, we're uh, starting to wrap up, but I do want to be mindful of your time. Are you okay? Uh, for... Yeah, yeah, I'm cool. good. Cool. We're just about to the end of what I've got uh, to share with you. Uh, then we can close out with a little discussion, but you remember oh. this? I I remember the picture and I, I've always wished I still had it. Um, <clears throat> this was before the age of memes, sure. but it was the age of Photoshop. And I don't know who made this image, but it was so, you know, having, it was a person with a screaming mouth and that same mouth replaced their eyes. And to me, I was so like, you know, I was still just as angry about the drug war in 99 as I was in, in, uh, you know, 88. And uh, I figured it was a, uh, it was hard 
not to look at. If you if you didn't look closely, you might just think it was a screaming person. But when when you realize that you know the mouth is where the eyes are as well, it um, yeah, it was a pretty. Uh, it's a almost pretty like good, a it's a disturbing image, but then when you pair it with the feed your mind, it's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. So it really catches your eye. Yeah. The, the play on the, you know, feed, feed and mouth. And, and, uh, um, yeah, to me, it was almost like the, um, the scream, you know, the, uh, yeah, yeah. The, the picture with, you know, the guy with the hands next to his face and screaming, Mm -hmm. um, or trying to, I don't know if he's screaming or if he's trying to cover his ears either way, but uh, <laughs> it kind of evoked that for me. And so when I saw it, I was like, man, I got to use it. I just, you know, I don't have anything better. Uh, I got to use it. Yeah. Well, uh, to wrap up with the the stuff I have archived, I'll just show a few others. And I don't know that this is necessarily sure. going to trigger any memories, but it's just you know, cool to see this stuff. For example, it's actually sitting right behind me, but I'm about to show you a picture of it. Got this envelope addressed to you. What's the, who is it from? That's a good question. Pride? Parents? National parents. I'll have to look, like I say, it is behind me so I can try to get a better look on it because that's a little. Yeah, so so by the by the late 90s, um, there were things, there were groups like uh, Mothers Against Mandatory Minimums. Um, there was a safe drugs movement, uh, mainly based out of New York. There were, um, you know, a lot of different uh, groups had started to form. Uh, you know, it wasn't just normal uh, at that time. National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. Uh, lots of other organizations had started up. Yeah, so this is uh, it's, it's something drug education, right? Parents. Yep, National Parents Resource Institute for Drug Education. That was it. Yep, yep. Just... So what their approach was was, you know, don't lie. You know, tell the truth. And yeah, you know, for me, the the failure of the just say no of the eighties was that they lied. So the first time a kid tries cannabis and he goes, wait a minute, they told me I was going to be a bum. They told me I was going to die. They told me I was, I was going to not be able to keep a job. And here I am the next day going to work. Like they lied to me. And the danger of the lie was now that you, if you lied about me or to me about cannabis, maybe you lied about other things too. Yes. And so, you know, the, the being in the black market when cannabis wasn't available, now you're predisposed to a bad decision. Well, you know, maybe they lied to me about whatever, cocaine or LSD uh-huh. or something else. May, and that's a dangerous situation, right? Yeah. You want to talk about gateway drug. That's what yeah, ends up. That, that was the gateway, you know, because it was in the same illicit black market and, you know, cannabis wasn't always available. Um, so sometimes when that wasn't available, other more hard substances were. And so the lie is what what was the gateway. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. No, I mean, just to I know it's anecdotal, but from my perspective, I you know, I had my battles with with my parents. And like when when I did tr- finally try cannabis, that is the thought that came to mind is they lied to me about this. What else are they lying to me about? And that's a scary yeah. question to come 
to a young man and you wonder who you can trust. And it's like, like you say, just tell the truth. And it, and it, it can lead you to feel somewhat invincible. I can handle anything. Yeah. That, right. That's not a good, good way to approach things either. So yeah, the, uh, I was open to getting information from any and all groups that uh, were in favor of change. You know, even yeah. if it wasn't for all drugs, you know, um, if they if they were open to the idea of change, I wanted to know about it. Yeah. So um, I I just wanted to cover a few bases, and we'll cut we'll close with I think the best conversation. You know, the a really good topic, which is like how are things today? You know, and Maybe we can reflect on that based on what we've talked about during this whole show. Um, I just thought it was notable that one of the things you mentioned, and I, I have to agree with you. I was looking for where I wrote it down. Um, you said something to the effect of, I want to believe that the activists of the late 80s and early 90s kept the flame alive long enough for a new generation to kind of dilute the old guards mentality. Yeah. I think you did yeah. that. I just wanted to say that. I think you did that. Oh, well, thanks. Um, you and the others, you know, later in my, in my life, uh, my father got a medical card in Illinois and, uh, I went back to him and I said, you know, dad, um, now do you see, you know, why I was so passionate about change so that, someday you might not have to worry about getting arrested for some medicine. And he said, well, I never gave you a hard time about it. I'm glad you did it. And, uh, that meant a lot to me. Um, and then, you know, Debbie Goldsberry went on to do great things with, uh, with medical cannabis as well. Uh, eventually she helped even come back from California to help author some of the, some of the regulations in Illinois. I don't think they're perfect, by any stretch of the imagination, I do have some problems with the modern version of decriminalization and legalization, but it's better. And uh, maybe not for everybody, maybe not everywhere, yeah. but the fact that we came this far, you know, our parents' generation from the 60s, they thought it was going to change by the 70s. <laughs> um when I was in the 80s, I thought it would change by the 90s. <laughs> Stuff takes as long as it takes. You have to overcome the resistance. You have to overcome the mindset. And I think by activists all over the country, um, young activists and some older ones, not giving up the fight. Yeah, you didn't win every battle. But the fact that you didn't go away was was huge you know by the time uh, i left illinois even the illinois um um department of agriculture was like look as soon as they make hemp legal we're for it like we'll we'll advocate it we'll get back into it we'll make it another cash crop we just need the politicians to change their minds you know what i mean so at the beginning had no support from from the agricultural community you had a few old guys who grew it during world war ii that was about it yeah uh, but the institutional the agricultural institution it they didn't come around until late 90s almost 10 years of hearing us talk about it and push it and 
uh, bring it to the public's attention and let people feel it and, and touch it and, uh, you know, buy hemp products. And, and um, eventually even, even they changed their minds. Yeah. And I noted that, you know, there's one specific part of this story that you mentioned. You didn't know if we were past the statute of limitations on, so feel free to leave <laughs> out that detail. But I just, when you talk about getting people's attention, not only did you do that, I think, but you also got the attention of those people you were talking about earlier, the police. Do you, are you comfortable with just telling a little bit about that little story you told me about how you were getting followed? And again, we don't have to go into that oh, one detail. Well, but... I mean, like I said, I tried to be civil. I tried to be open. I was being as honest as I could. Call me any time. Um, when that first hemp bus went down to, um, uh, from Champaign-Urbana down to Springfield and then from Springfield down to Carbondale, uh, the police would literally tail this bus from county to county to county. Like they knew what the hemp tour was. They knew that there was a bus full of activists and they kind of, kind of, uh, you know, followed us. And at one point, I believe it was in after, in between Springfield and Carbondale. The bus actually got pulled over, and uh, I was afraid they were going to search the whole bus. And I was probably the only student stupid enough to have a little bit of cannabis with me. Um, I say stupid because you know I I could have got the guy's bus impounded. Right, this is you know civil asset forfeiture was hot and heavy in the nineties. That was dumb. It was absolutely dumb, and. Uh, you know, I, I was scared. I was scared out of my brains. Uh, and I, I tried to eat. the. It wasn't a lot. I mean, it would have been a misdemeanor or something even back then. But I I had to try to eat it. I felt compelled to try to eat it. And I remember it being way harder than anyone would, would imagine to, to, to choke down, you know, a dry leafy. I mean, just imagine eating a handful of of oregano or yeah. parsley or anything, you know, green and leafy. And it was, you know, and nothing to drink. I was like, Ugh. right. It gets boring. caught in your throat. I'm like, Ugh. yeah. In the end, they stepped onto the bus. They looked back. They saw half a dozen, you know, ragtag activists. They didn't search us at all. And I'm like, well, at least I don't have to worry the rest of the tour. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that was that was a very interesting interaction. Uh, I was also on a, uh, I don't know which year there was a, a, a local PBS talk show called Talking Point, and I believe it was late eighties or mid eighties. Yeah, late. No, let's see, late eighties, early nineties. Anyway, um, the the television show was uh, ostensibly to address issues of the day. And the, the moderator picked three people. They picked the division commander of the state police from Chicagoland, which I think was a very big di division. He was kind of supposed to represent the right or the, you know, the, the anti-drug um, uh, voice. They got a professor from University of uh, Blooming, uh, Bloomington Normal. They didn't know that I, had, I knew who he was. I, um, just from going to uh, a couple of rallies over there um he was uh, he was supposed to be the moderate and then i was supposed to be the the left-wing weirdo radical guy 
but not only did um i come off smelling like a peach every single caller who called in at the at the final portion of the show agreed with me and was was absolutely in favor of drug policy reform and cannabis reform and it took like literally 48 hours i got a uh, one of my co-workers at a local pet shop her husband was on the on the uh, champagne police force and uh she said my my husband wants to talk to you i said okay fine um he said we we have word that we're never supposed to debate you again uh i said well who told you this like i've always been open to talking because this came from higher up that's all he would say you'll never get one of our law enforcement guys to talk with to talk in public with you again wow because they they looked so bad on that interview apparently i don't know um but i was like man that sucks like i wasn't trying to dirt bag on him i wasn't you know i was trying to be as reasonable as i could for a you know, college, college student, mm -hmm. but, uh, but so that was another weird interaction at one of the rallies that we staged. I don't remember which year it was. I went up to one of the law, one of the law enforcement officers that was there to patrol the, the event. I said, you know, you guys got a really crappy job. He goes, look, I know. He said, I can't say this officially, but we would rather be catching violent criminals than busting potheads. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and that was a you know private conversation on the side with the law enforcement. But, you know, there were a lot of people who looked at them strictly as the enemy. Right. I looked at them as just another group of people that are misinformed. And uh, but I knew from some of the private dialogue that they're not all against us. They're just being asked to do stupid stuff for stupid people. Yeah, that's well said. Well said. Well, I think I've got two more things that'll basically exhaust uh, the list of questions that I have for you today. Sure. Um, just, uh, I thought it was interesting that you mentioned that Cypress Hill asked you to set up a booth talking about the legalization of cannabis. Yeah, I think they must have got my name and phone number from High Times. Um, so yeah, they were having they had a concert in uh, I want to say it was ninety. And at the time, you weren't really aware of who they were, right? Am I correct? No, I well, not really. I wasn't really aware of their. You know, they, they had a couple of popular songs on the radio, um, but I wasn't like a huge fan or something like that. Mm -hmm. I knew knew them as kind of. Uh, a stoner band. Mm. Um, but I wouldn't, I didn't own any of their music or anything like that. And their manager called me up and said, Hey, uh, we'd like, we'd like it if you had set up a, a pro legalization booth at our, at our, at our concert in Chicago. And I said, well, I've got some flyers. I've got some copies of Jack Rear's book. And, uh, um, I don't know, you know, if you think people are interested in it, I'll give it a try. I'll give anything a try. And so we were set up, um, I set up outside uh, right in the front as people came in uh, just past the bouncer. And most people weren't that interested. They really were there for the music. Uh, but it was the band's expression of their political belief. Cause if, if they didn't believe in 
drug policy reform. There, there, there's no way the manager would have called, called me. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but after the show, um, I, uh, I, I was able to make my way backstage. With the, I wanted to give the band a copy of Jack Rear's book. And I remember going up these stairs, uh, making a left, and there was a, a, a massive party uh, going on. And I, I knew some of the faces and somebody said, oh, there's, you know, some and so and so and so and so. And I didn't really know all their names, but I knew it was members of the band and other bands that were all partying together up there. I swear you could not see three foot in front of your face. The smoke was so intense. I had to literally hold the hand railing going down the stairs. Cause I was like, man, these guys got me geeked up. Uh, thankfully I wasn't <laughs> driving, but I did leave, I did leave a book. Um, I don't know who ended up getting it. I think it was the manager got it. Um, but at least I, you know, I, I made my attempt to, uh, to give them a gift on my, you know, from me, uh, on behalf of, you know, young activists everywhere. And, uh, just remember telling them, I thought it was cool that I got the invite and, uh, I, I didn't really want to stick around too long cause it was really intensely smoky. And, um, I, uh, was not really prepared for that. Um, but, uh, but it's another fun story, you know, to, to tell, you know, yeah. that, uh, you got to meet the band of Cypress Hill. Do you remember them? Not really. I was, you know, they got me messed up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but hey, that's the best story, you know. But it happened. Kind of you know, it did happen, and I made it home safely. And I still worked my job, and everything was good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to close with a conversation about the synchronicity around champagne, which I think will touch a few different bases that I had, uh, that, that like the War Hemp Archives and stuff that you've mentioned. Uh, and then I'd just like to close with talking about uh, tax and regulate, which is what I see as the current state of cannabis uh, in, in the United States and in Illinois. Uh, but before we get to that, that's our closing topic. I, I've been so excited to talk to you about this specifically, the synchronicity around champagne. And the question I've been wanting to ask people that's been inspired with you is, are you familiar with the role that Champaign-Urbana played in the history of cannabis in America off the top of your head. Can you, and I've got a lot of them written down and I've even got some things ready to pull up to share while you're talking. Can you talk to us about the synchronicity from your perspective of uh, Champaign, Illinois? I can probably still remember a little bit of it. Um, Of course, during world war two, the Illinois effort to recruit hemp farmers uh, was based out of Chicago, but the but one of the very first um, farms was just outside of Champaign. I believe it was in Rantoul, um, and uh, so we we were, and and actually, there were no there was a farm even even in the eighteen eighties. Um, there was there was some growth in uh, in Illinois. There were there maybe a half a dozen big states for for hemp historically, uh, for agricultural hemp. Um, so, you know, we have a couple of historical points, you know, 1880s, uh, 1940s. Um, the uh, There was a, I don't know what year, but there was a, a chemist, uh, Roger Adams, I believe his name was. There, there, I remember there was a chemistry lab at University of Illinois named after this particular chemist. 
and he was one of the guys who it I was Roger Adams. Roger Adams. Yep. yep. Uh, he had um, something to do with the uh, uh, isolation of THC. Now, and that was in the 30s. Uh, he is not historically given any real significant credit for that that in, that chemistry involvement. Uh, the, the guy who gets all the credit is an Israeli scientist. But so, you know, here we are, University of Illinois, 1930s. We have, uh, you know, a chemist who's isolating some of the psychoactive components of cannabis, uh, 1940s, we have the, uh, you know, the uh, central Illinois um, industrial uh, hemp for the war effort. Um, in the 60s, we had um, a famous pro-legalization guy. Uh, he was the, he founded Playboy magazine. What was his name? Hugh Hefner. Yeah, Hugh Hefner, yeah. He was always a big advocate for freedom and you know uh, personal liberties, and uh, he got his degree at University of Illinois. Um, I think uh, Steve Hager in the '60s was uh, uh, he was born, I believe, in Urbana, and I could be wrong, but I know he was from Champaign, Urbana. He later became the editor in chief of High Times Magazine. Um, the one of the executive directors of Normal. Uh, Keith Stroop, um, he got his degree at University of Illinois as well. Um, so, yeah, it just seemed like by the time the 80s, the 90s hit, um, well, then in the 80s, 70, late 70s and 80s, we had the Hash Wednesday, which was the sister sister rally to the Hash Bash up in Wisconsin. Um, and then by the time the 90s came along, I'm like, man, there is a there is something about this place that's that's special uh and whether anybody ever re realizes it or not because i believe small things can have big impact and so you know, it's easy to downplay oh that was just a, a party on the quad or oh that was just um you know uh, a couple of you know graduates who eventually became big in the legalization movement chef raw who was a he was a, a a cooking author for for High Times Magazine, famous local personality from Champaign Urbana. He uh, wore dreadlocks and roller skated all over the place. He was a rather infamous local character. Um, so yeah, it just felt like no matter what I did, that I was in the following in the footsteps of some kind of you know karmic path to uh, to change and. Uh, so no matter, it didn't matter to me, you know, whether the rallies were big or little or whatever, just to know that I was one of the people of, of many that, you know, took time and took interest and, and, uh, and made my voice heard. I just, it felt like a privilege more than anything. Yeah. And then, you know, in many ways, I look at it, I don't know, as a privilege, but I just like, I admire what you did. I admire what you and everybody did to participate in it. Because again, as somebody living in a, in a year where, you know, medical care, I look, let me put it this way, jo Joshua, I had my medical card and I still was not being honest with people about my use. I was sure. using it legally. 
yep. and so for you to have done that all those years ago like i just i well, look up to you all so so much i mean the average lifespan of a college activist is four years and somehow i was able to stay involved for nine years something like that um don't know exactly why except i was committed to the idea that don't give up the fight never give up the fight and even though we have uh medical cannabis the system could still be better um there's always room for growth always room for change um and and i and i believe that i truly believe that and in that spirit, that's a perp. You just set me up perfectly for our last topic. Uh, if I could just quickly say that I am happy. I want to reiterate what you've said uh, in this episode. I am happy with the progress we've made. It's better than nothing. But as you just said, there's always room to improve. You know, tax and regulate is great. Uh, but one of my main issues with it, at least as it's practiced in Illinois and in most states, is that the criminal law is still the enforcement mechanism. So to give an example, if if I'm shipping what the state determines to be a large quantity of cannabis, it's not it's not a business offense. A, a better example maybe to use is if I'm serving liquor to to people, right, that come by and I'm serving it like commercially, I need a license in order to do that. And if I don't do that, I get hit with some like business fines. Not, oh yeah, you know, yeah. not criminal time, biz. You know, it's a business fine, um, and and that's just not how it is in Illinois, or or like I say, in most of the United States, even where it's I say in air quotes legal, because uh, as my fr- sorry, our friend, the person that introduced me to you, likes to say, I'm loosely quoting him, cannabis is not legal until we can buy, grow, uh, a gift. And so possess and sell as much as we want, need, or please. Um, I'm loosely yeah. paraphrasing him. Um, but to open it up to you for your perspective, you know, I, I don't know, there are shortcomings in the, of course, as you just said, there's always room uh, to move. But I'm just curious as a, as a person who was fighting for, I mean, you literally, one of the quotes I said, and even in the newspapers, uh, you said, you know, this is this is at most a public health issue. It's not a conversation about criminal enforcement. I'm curious how you as an activist today feel about the fact that criminal enforcement is still the primary mechanism. I hate it. Um, we still fill up the jails with people for possession. OK, maybe not as much for small possession, but if you got a large quantity. Yeah, count on a ticket to you know club fed. Uh, you know, yes, there is a legal way to sell it, but if you don't do it the way the state says, welcome to club fed. Um, it's kind of like um, you know paying an extortion fee. You know, yeah, we'll we'll let you do this thing, but only if you do it the way we want you to do it. There's nothing about the regulations in my mind, even today, that makes cannabis safer. Um, now, granted, when you're running a dispensary, you've got some some microscopes on you, right? You've got you've got to uh, make there, there's some rules that you have to follow about where you get it from, 
what the quality is, truth in advertising and labeling. That's a big thing. That's I, I think that's you're, you're less likely to get something that's adulterated from a dispensary than you would be from from the black market. So there are some benefits, but the fact that having the state take its its cut means that there's still people on the black market selling it cheaper than you get it in the dispensary. So it didn't solve the black market that much. It just gave people a little bit of relief that now I don't have to worry about getting arrested if I'm going to pick up my medicine. Right. Um, so I, and, and then, you know, the question of, well, what do you do with those funds? You know, is it to help people that have issues with drugs or problems with drugs? Or is it to fund a whole bunch of other ho-ha, you know, just garbage stuff? Right. Like, or, or, you know, uh, there's still civil asset forfeiture. You break the rules as they are today, and they'll literally arrest your property. In fact, mm -hmm. in America today, the police make more money off of stealing stuff from people they deem to be criminals than the criminals steal from regular people. It's pathetic. It's it's sad. We now have a situation that, you know, there are prisons on the stock market, which means now there's a financial incentive to keep people in jail for stupid stuff. Right. I'm not saying that there aren't, you know, certain individuals can't have problems with 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 drugs. They they certainly can. Sure, sure. But if you're using that money that you're making as the state for anything other than telling the truth about drugs and helping the people who have problems with drugs, you're being disingenuous. You're, you're literally being like a leech. And I don't like it. I don't like it. Um, yeah, I agree with the, 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 the statement that, uh, that our mutual friend made. Something that you said to me that really stuck with me that I'm going to start kind of stealing from you is uh, you referred to cannabis or or even just let's just talk drug people that are serving time for drugs as prisoners of war, yeah, drug war. And I'm taking that. That's so true. Yeah. I went to, uh, um, I went to uh, uh, a speech at the university of Illinois, Timothy Leary, uh, one of the, 1960s lsd gurus you know tune in turn on drop out guys yeah. uh pretty pretty you know pretty radical for the first time but of course back then you know that was before they made lsd illegal right but um i went to this this uh speech with him and um i can't remember the name of the guy who uh put him in jail literally got him finally arrested anyway i was the only one out of you know a thousand, two thousand students watching this, you know, sixties guru uh, idol that brought a sign, and I wrote I, the sign said, "You know, uh, forty million prisoners of war since nineteen thirty-seven, end the drug war now." And he actually pointed that sign out during his speech, and then waved me up to the stage later on to sign it which, you know, it was one of my prized possessions until it got ruined in a, in a flood that I was living in a basement apartment and, and the flood destroyed that poster. But it, um, I, I see the prisoners of war, prisoners of the drug war, um, 
as victims of the state. You know, the they invented the problem, they contrived the solution, and all they did was hurt families. You know, you, you could say, oh, well, you know, they saved my family from, you know, the grips of addiction. No, not really. Um, you know, they broke up families. They took away the primary breadwinner. They forced families into the welfare system. So the taxpayers had to continue to pay over and over. And they put them in a system, a criminal justice system. It was like criminal university. You know, like the chances of them being, you know, the, the chances of recidivism in the American criminal justice system very high. We say we don't want them to be criminals again, but that's not the reality of what's happening. And so then the cycle of poverty gets extended, the cycle of, you know, you know repeat offenders, three strikes, you're out. It just absolutely, you know, militarize the police, uh, demonize the users. Um, broke up families. It was just a horrendous, horrendous period. It, it's the drug war has always been fallen on the backs of minorities harsher than it has, you know, the white Americans. And even with cocaine, you know, they the get harsher penalties for crack in the eighties than this than the same quantity of of powder cocaine that a white guy would get caught with. Right. Horrible, absolutely horrible. So it just reinforced, you know, to me. I, I do see them as prisoners of war. It's funny though, I actually told um I was at an event a couple of years back and I was kind of fessing up to my college years as an activist. And this guy who was he was younger than me, but he said something really funny to me. And nobody's ever said it. He said, Thank you for your service. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> like, yes, I was fighting against the drug war, but you know, I I I wasn't doing battle with a foreign enemy or something like that. I was just doing my part, doing what I could do. And he said, I tried to do that too. I was a reporter and I always tried to give it a positive spin. And, you know, I, I, nobody would have known me as a, as a, as a pro pro reform journalist, but, but uh, he said, not only would, you know, the guys like you made my job more interesting, but, Behind the scenes, I was totally with you. So, you know, thank you for your service. <laughs> like, that's crazy. That's a, a wild way to look at it. But it was it it is and was a drug war. And yeah. uh, I I think that uh, I lament the lives of law enforcement that have been lost in the pursuit of the drug war. I lament the lives of the families that have been you know terrorized. I I I. I can't see one drop of good by taking what should be at best a public health issue and turning it into a criminal justice one. To this day, I still believe the same thing. Right. Right. And there are so many ways we can go. I, I do want to be, you know, respectful of your time and everything. But like you say, I mean, prohibition, There, there's a reason there's the the idea of the ironclad rule of prohibition. I'm not sure if you're familiar but it's the idea that drugs will always get more potent and more dangerous. Yeah. And, and one of the reasons Nixon was, um, you know, cracking down on the hippies was they were anti-war activists and drugs right. was a way to take them out of action, whether they flooded the market two or three days before a rally. So they'd all be zonked out of their minds and less people would show up or they would use drugs as an excuse to arrest the organizers 
Um, I mean, there's definitely his, uh, stories in history of uh, the state adulterating substances. You know, even during the alcohol prohibition, they would taint the alcohol and literally you know, kill people and cause them to go blind. The chemicals that the state would spray on the wild hemp, knowing that some teenager or some you know hippie would pick this plant and then ingest a po something that had been poisoned absolutely unconscionable absolutely unconscionable yeah well said well said well uh do you want to close this out with a short video uh a very short one minute video of uh, the synchronicity of champagne um sure i did you ever find the uh i mentioned to you before a cd um songs about reefer uh no uh no i, I have it written down I have it yeah, written that, down, but yeah, that's from a uh, you know pre pre nineteen thirty seven, um, and it's fantastic. It's from the age of Minnie the Moocher. Yeah, uh, when you know when 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 they had different slang names for cannabis, like you know tea, for example, <laughs> um, and uh, uh, that album. If you ever come across it, I used to play that all the time, all the time. Fantastic um, way to to. To, to make people remember it didn't used to always be the way that it is today. <laughs> so yeah, what's uh, called again? Reefer songs. I, I think it's called songs about reefer. Okay. Okay. Never mind. I thought I found it. it it's but... a, it's a compilation album of mm -hmm. jazz, jazz musicians from the twenties. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, let's, let's close out. This is just a minute long video. I think you're going to like this. It doesn't necessarily have to do with cannabis, but it's just more, uh, synchronicity oh, around God. the town of uh, Champagne, yeah. So awesome, cool. Now it's great to talk about our incredible innovations and unmatched higher education, and we want to make sure you know that you're welcome. You're welcome to come be a part of our diverse, culturally rich community in Champagne Urbana. You're welcome to enjoy our thriving art scene. You're welcome to enjoy our low cost of living. How about some fresh farm to table food in Champagne Urbana? You're welcome. And an unfilled <laughs> micro-urban lifestyle. How do we do it in Champaign-Urbana? Is it the people, the culture, the university smarts, the unmatched record of innovation? Is it something in the water? Yes, 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 and oh, yeah, the water has been ranked best in the country twice. Whatever. So that's actually not the video I was looking for. I apologize. Um, <laughs> they did this. You're well. It, it's part of the same like uh, PR campaign. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah, they did this. You're welcome, Champagne, and they talked about all of the different things that have come from Champagne, including, um, you know, like the compressed uh, foam in a can, like Cool Whip. But what's it called? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Ready I Whip. Can't... Ready Whip. Yeah. Uh, air conditioning. The internet. The uh, first yeah. synthesizer, the yeah. first electric synthesizer. Wow! I, I knew that. I knew, I knew a kid whose dad was the one of the inventors of the synthesizer, Alex Martirano. Yeah, I did not know that. Um, Salva, I think his name was Salvatore Sal, Salvatore Mart Martirano. Yeah, he, very early innovator in electronic music. Yeah, I'm really sad. I can't find that that old PR campaign. It was that same woman. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was like, you're welcome champagne, but they were, it, she, what she was saying in it. And if I can find it, I'll add it after the fact, but she was saying that you can think 
champagne for all these things. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I think there was a famous pizza place that might have started in champagne too. Yeah, Papa Dell's. Papa Dell's. There you go. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, known for yeah, just having great fucking pizza. So, free advertising there for Papa Dell's. Joshua, before we go today, I just have to say. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for all of your time. You're very generous with your time and uh, thank you for your service. I, I do mean that. And uh, I appreciate the the walk down memory lane, um, giving me a chance to look back and reminisce. I'm not guilty of for anything that happened. Um, we never hurt anybody. Uh, we never damaged anything. Um, and uh, we had some fun along the way. Yeah. Well, Joshua, I, uh, I don't, I want I want to maybe have you back on sometime in the future. I feel like you still got some fight in you, um, so maybe we can make that happen. I'd I'd be happy to uh, happy to be back. Cool, cool. Well, folks, I hope you found as much value as I did in this conversation. We'll see you on the next episode of the Cole Memo. Don't forget about Hash Wednesday. There you go. Take care, everybody. <laughs>